Would you join me in a word of prayer before this morning's message? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> that little prayer, whenever I say that, uh, it takes me back to my childhood. Uh, I grew up in a church where the pastor every Sunday would quote the scripture from memory. Uh, so he's really smarter than me. And then following that, he would say, let's have a word of prayer before this morning's message. And he would always pray that prayer. And I found out from somebody uh, several years ago, because when I first candidated here to be the pastor, uh, and actually one of the Sundays that I did pulpit supply, I started out by reading the text, and then I prayed that little prayer. And somebody uh, at this church later shared with me that they were a little worried because when the last minister that prayed that prayer before he preached, preached, he wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what that means about me, but uh, they did vote me in. So maybe they were used to bad sermons. Um, we continue our, our look at this uh, issue of the whole in the gospel. And today we're going to wrestle with what I think uh, Richard Stearns calls the whole in the church. And last week we, we looked at how Jesus calls us to putting first God's kingdom. And if we do that, if we seek first the kingdom of God, then all other things in our lives, all our other worries, all our other cares will take care of themselves. Actually, they don't take care of themselves. God takes care of those things for us if we'll seek first his kingdom. And so for the last few weeks, we have been wrestling through the notion that the church in America and, and you and I are very, very blessed. And we have more than enough. It may not always feel that way, but if we're all honest, we could stand to do without a handful of things. And to contrast that, many people in this world do not have enough. Uh, they live in abject poverty. They live in, ex in, 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 in terrible, horrific conditions that we would never, ever dream of, nor would we want to live in those conditions. A couple of statistics for those out there that like these things. Um, there are 6.4 billion people in the world, and one in seven of them do not have enough to eat. One in seven people in the world do not have enough to eat. One in six do not have access to safe water. One in six do not have access to the most basic health care. One in two live on less than $2 a day. You know, one of the things that I've been kicking around is different ways to participate in Advent conspiracy just personally. Uh, and I've come up with several ideas. One was to fast for a week. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is just eat rice and beans for a week. Uh, and Bino. Just eat rice and beans. <laughs> You're all thinking that, right? Just eat rice and beans for a week. And then whatever money I saved on my food bill, I would give away. Because so many people in this world, that's what they exist on, rice and beans. Uh, another idea I had, and the reason I brought this up, was one in two lives on less than two bucks a day. <laughs> I've wrestled with how could I live on less than two bucks a day. I'd have to move out into, I couldn't even live in my yard because my property tax and my 
mortgage and the tent I'd be in. <laughs> I mean, it's I'd have to find shabby clothes for free. I, how could you do that? Practically live on two bucks a day in our culture. And that was one thing I've just wrestled with. How could I live a handful of days just more simply so that I could give away? You've heard this statistic. 26,000 children under the age of five die every day of preventable causes. 93 million primary age children are not in school in the world. 800 million, almost three times the population of the U.S., go hungry every day. Every seven seconds, a child under five dies from a hunger-related cause. Children who are modestly underweight are four times more likely to die of disease than well-nourished kids. Somber statistics, aren't they? Overwhelming statistics. And it's been interesting as I've uh, circled around and heard different conversations that people are having in town and in our church. There's been a lot of folks that feel like the problem's so big, I don't know what to do. The problem's so huge, I guess we don't, we shouldn't give or do anything. It leads to a certain type and form of paralysis, doesn't it? To hear these mind-numbing and these unbelievable statistics. It it can get you lulled into a state of paralysis, right? Amen? Amen. Is anybody here today? (laughs) Someday I'm going to break out. Okay. So I've been wrestling through how not to be paralyzed in the face of, of such tragedy. And does Jesus really call us to do something about this? Is there really a moral obligation that we have to this? Uh, Let me share with you some statistics about the church in America, just for some contrast. The total estimated income of American church goers is $5.2 trillion. That's more than $5,000 billion, okay? (laughs) If, If... Trillions don't make sense to you. And for some of us, billions don't make sense to us. That's that's more than $5,000 billion. American Christians who make up about 5% of the church worldwide. So that means you are an extreme minority if you are a church-going person in America. So think what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be a little different than what you and I are used to. American Christians who make up about 5% of the church worldwide control about half of global Christian wealth. It would take just a little over 1% of the income of American Christians to lift the poorest 1 billion people out of extreme poverty. 1% of that 5,000 billion. That's a pretty small percentage to lift the world's most poor out of extreme poverty. Well, again, mind-numbing, isn't it? Humbling, paralyzing in some ways. What I want to do today, though, is I want us to consider if the church has a responsibility to those in this world. Picture for a moment heaven with me. There you and I are. And we are 5% of those who are in heaven. 
What will you say to those 95% who look at your life and the time that you lived and saw that you lived in the Disneyland of world history? Frankly, I hope we all have our own table, right? Be a little more comfortable. Be a little less awkward. And so one thing I wonder is, is there an obligation? Is there... Is there a moral reason that we need to give to the poor? And more important, what does God expect us to do? You know, God understands all these things, and to Him it's not statistics. Every single one of those people that live off $2 a day has a name. Every single one of those people that go to bed hungry every single day, God knows the amount of hair on their head. Every single one of those folks who lost their child to preventable hunger-related causes, he weeps with those parents, just as if your child had died. And so these aren't abstract statistics. And I often wonder, God, how could you handle it? How, how could you stand it? And if you're like me, you quickly go, why doesn't he do something about it? Don't you feel that? Why doesn't God intervene? I mean, after all, we have that really great story about Jesus feeding 10,000 with five loaves and two fish. Why doesn't he just feed the masses? Why doesn't he do something about it? This question leads to uh, an interesting uh, process of thinking, though, theologically. If you'll turn with me real quick, I wasn't going to do this, but I really like this verse, so tough. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Maybe you've read Acts and this verse hasn't made sense to you. Wait, that's not it. Sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I got ahead of myself. In my former book, Theophilus. Now, Luke, the, the doctor, wrote the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, Luke, the doctor. Just checking to see if you're awake with me. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. A-C-T-S, not A-X. Yes, or however you might have pronounced that. He wrote the book of Acts, and he wrote them to a guy named Theophilus. And he's writing these things to explain what and who Jesus is and what he did. In my former book, referring to the book of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus, what's the next word? Began to do and to teach. Began Luke ends with Jesus leaving and going to heaven. Huh? All that Jesus began to do? Began means that he's still doing stuff, right? Because it had a beginning and it's continuing. Uh, when I read that, I would expect him to say something like, in my former book, book, I mean, my former book Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus did, right? But he says, began to do. So that tells us that God, that Jesus, is still doing things in this world. And the book goes on to describe the growth of a thing called the church. 
And so when I look at world hunger, when I look at these mind-numbing, paralyzing statistics, do you know what God says when I get in His face and say, why don't you do something? He says, church, why don't you do something? You see, how I began doing things is with the church. What's supposed to continue doing things is the church. Now, before you think, well, we're all about saving souls. And that's true. That's the ultimate goal of the redemption and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But there are other goals as to Jesus' death on the cross. One is to establish Jesus' rule and reign in this world, right? And if Jesus is to rule and reign in this world, do you think folks will go hungry? Do you think children will die of preventable causes when Jesus is king? Do you think that everyone will have clean water to drink when Jesus rules and reigns the earth? Now, if the church is the body of people that introduces Christ's rule and reign wherever it goes, shouldn't it look like Jesus is really reigning where the church is? So if the church is going into Africa or into Haiti or into these places where people are hungry and thirsty and dying of preventable reasons, then Jesus isn't king there. And the church has work to do. All right, let's jump into the text we're going to look at. Luke chapter 10. We're going to go to the source himself, Jesus. And this is a passage of scripture that if you've been in church at any point in your life, you've heard this. And even if you haven't, if you've watched the evening news and heard about somebody who helped somebody on the road who got injured, and then that person thought about suing them because they did more damage than good. We've passed laws called the Good Samaritan Law, right? To protect good doers, doers of goodness, or however you say that. And so it gets its notion from here. Everybody's heard about the Good Samaritan. Well, here in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that a good question? Hello? Has anybody been in class before and some kid asks a dumb question? Right after the teacher says, there are no such things as dumb questions. Let me tell you, if you're a teacher and you said that, you're lying to your kids. There are dumb questions. There are some stupid questions, but this happens to be a really good question. Maybe you've never wondered about this question. Maybe you have wondered about this question. This is a great question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Jesus answer to answer it with the question. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? When you see that, how do you read it? It means, how do you interpret it? What do you see in the law? What does it say to you? What does it mean to you? What do you think the meaning to your question is? Now, one thing we can learn from this is if anybody ever asks you, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Why do you go to church on Sundays? Why do you do these things? Counter with a question. 
Jesus does this all the time. And by the way, you and I don't always know the answers to their questions. Jesus knew the answers to their questions, but he would always spin it so that they would have to think a little bit more. Pretty fun what he did. Keep that in mind. So he says, this expert in the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. How does Jesus respond? You have answered correctly. Weird, because I haven't heard my pastor say that as to how do I inherit eternal life. Has anybody else heard their pastor say that? As to how to inherit eternal life? My pastor usually goes to John 3.16. For God's love the world that he gave his one and only son, right? My pastor usually goes to places where it says, uh, if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts, then we will be saved. My pastor usually says something other than this. My pastor doesn't seem to know Jesus. Okay, so what's going on here? Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now there's a question of clarity here that he wants to ask. Before I go on, though, I need to help you with the wart I just exposed in all of our thinking. Uh, Jesus isn't contradicting the gospel here. Jesus isn't contradicting anything he's taught. The problem is you and I can't do that. You and I, in our own strength, can't love God with all. And in the Greek, that means all We can't love God in our own strength with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, and with all of the other thing. Because I got them out of order. I got myself confused. Can anybody do that? I can't do that. And then it says to love your neighbor as yourself. I have a sister and a brother, and they can testify to you that I didn't always love my nearest neighbor as myself, right? There were times that I would conk them on the head because I was bored in the car on a long drive. There were times I would pick fights because it was fun. There were times that they would cramp my space style, whatever it was that was important to me, and I would go for a little elbow room. I have witnesses in my life that can tell you I haven't always loved my neighbor as me. My guess is we could find somebody in your life who could do the same about you. We can't do this. And that's where that grace part, that's where that Jesus came and lived the life that you and I should have lived. We should have lived this way. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You and I should live this way. That's the standard. That's how you inherit eternal life. We couldn't do that. Jesus, however, came and lived the life you and I could not live. And died the the death that we're supposed to die. You see, since we didn't do this, we deserve death. We are condemned under the law of God, the scriptures say. And so Jesus died that death for us. And if we place our faith in Christ as our Savior, His death will be applied to us. And we no longer have to die. And we receive eternal life. Okay, that was a little, that was free. So, it's all free. (laughs) That was just goofy. 
So then he says, the expert in the law, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's a great question too, right? Jesus knows the motivation of the man though. He, he, he wants to push a little bit on Jesus and find out who exactly are you talking about here? In reply, Jesus said this, and you have all heard this most likely. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Bad. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. All you need to know is the priest and the Levite are really religious people. And they ignore this person. Jesus is setting up his audience. Because the next person you expect to hear my guess is you expect to hear a Jew, a Jewish guy was walking down the road, but Jesus doesn't go there. And this is where this story being so familiar to us loses some of its impact. He says this, but a Samaritan now picture, if you will, the whole crowd just sneering and booing at this point, boo, <laughs> be like, you know, chief fans. <laughs> or worse yet, Raiders fans, right? Boo! Or Yuma fans. Or God forbid, Burlington fans, right? But a man from Burlington. Oh, jeez. A guy from Yuma. Ugh. Here it's even worse, though, because a Samaritan would be like saying a, a, a Muslim. Because a Samaritan had a whole different religious worldview than the Jewish people. A Samaritan was racially different than the Jewish people. They were half-breeds. They were, they were tainted. Those people. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. What? A Samaritan? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and, and, and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. What? Really? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Don't you love how Jesus teaches? Because he could have said this, people you don't like are your neighbor. To which all of us go, Jesus, you got dropped as a baby by Mother Mary. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. But telling this story disarms us because we all know who the neighbor was. And we all have to say, oh my goodness. You don't mean to tell me that my neighbor is that person? Jesus loves to make you figure it out. And look at what the expert in the law says. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He doesn't even want to say, smear, smear, the, the one who had mercy on him. Right? He doesn't even want to say it. He didn't like this guy. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus 
told him, go and do likewise. A couple of things I want you to see in that story. To act neighborly towards somebody, we have to be aware of their problem. And the priest and the Levite were aware of the man's problem, right? It wasn't surprising to them. They came and they saw a guy who was beat up and they didn't do anything about it. Scriptures call this a sin of omission because you omitted what you should have done. And so they walk on the other side. They were aware of the problem. They chose not to act. Also, to be a neighbor, we have to have the means to help them. Most likely, the priest and the Levite had the means to help. They, they could have at least called for help for the guy. They could have waited on the road till some others came if they didn't have the, a donkey to place him on. They, they could have chosen to stop and help, correct? They had access to help, but they didn't. So I ask you, are you aware of the need in the world? I, that's why I start out with some statistics. So that you would know that there is a dire, grave need in this world. And do you think that God, once you know of that need, expects of you to do something about it? And number two, do you have access and means to help those in need? Last week, I put on the screen several organizations that you could partner with because most likely you and I aren't going to get on a plane and go personally to hand cash to starving kids. But lucky for you and I, there are organizations that you can send your money to who've already got people there helping. One great example is Compassion International. And long before the earthquake... They had a presence in Haiti. In fact, the president of Compassion International got married in a church in Haiti to his wife. And they are deeply committed to the people in Haiti. They love the people in Haiti. They know pastors and Christians and kids by name in Haiti. And he's not going to take your money and build for himself some crazy house and build an air conditioned home for his dog and have lots and lots of private planes. 85% of the money you give to Compassion International goes to those kids. 85 cents of every dollar goes to those kids. So you have access, you have resources, you have ministries you can turn to, to give to. Living Water International has been drilling wells for years. And to date, they have drilled 6,000 wells in 26 nations. And it costs an average of $3,000 to drill a well for drinking water. Wouldn't it be fun to think that First Christian Church of Ray, Colorado, who has who's from a state who's got some water issues. <laughs> but the folks in Ray gave enough money to drill a well in Haiti at Christmas time. Wouldn't that be cool? And so $3,000 roughly will drill a well using Living Water International. And about 
of every dollar you give to Living Water International goes to drilling wells. 89 cents of every dollar. Do you know how mean and lean you got to run a nonprofit to be able to give 89 cents of every dollar to the actual work you say you're doing? You got to run lean and mean to do that. So you have the access, you have the means. The final question in this is do you have the heart? Will you follow Jesus in what he says at the very end? Go and do likewise. Go and be a neighbor. Now, I want to encourage all of you because I am so excited with where our church is headed and what we are doing. We have a ministry that we regularly give 10% of all monies that we receive to other ministries and people in need. And so every month, 10 cents of every dollar you give, minimum, leaves this place and goes and does ministry elsewhere. And I'm excited about that because one thing that we need to do as a church is if we ask of you to give, then we as a church body need to be giving. And last year, if you run the numbers and look at our Advent conspiracy giving and our giving to other organizations and other things, we actually gave more like 20% of all the giving that we gave here at this church. And to me, that excites me because when I see that we have resources to have pretty stuff at Christmas time and more than enough the rest of the year, I wonder how I'm going to feel at the wedding supper of the lamb if the folks next to me lost a child to starvation. And my big concern was how to pay for my kid's college. You see, I wrestle, and I don't share that to guilt you, and I don't share that to guilt me. I just wonder how many awkward conversations Steve Weinkoop's going to have with other believers in heaven. Well, I want you to know that we are doing a lot of things at our church to try to address this hole in the church to help us love our neighbors at ourselves. But there's one last thing I want you to share with you, and that's a quote from a man whose name is Peter Singer. Peter Singer is professor of bioethics at Princeton University. If you know anything about Princeton, it's a liberal school. And if you know anything about Peter Singer, Peter Singer believes that abortion's okay, And he even goes so far as to believe that infanticide in some instances is okay. That it's okay to kill a baby if there's problems with that child or they're not going to have enough food or water for the rest of their life. He also is very pro-animal liberation and that animals should never be eaten and animals shouldn't be raised for any means of consumption and all these crazy liberal ideas that this guy has. But look at this quote from this crazy liberal man, Peter Singer. The injustice of some people living in abundance while others starve is morally indefensible. That comes from a crazy wacko. And that 
to me, is humbling to the church. When a crazy wacko man calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, that's scary and pathetic. What is the world coming to when it is an avowed atheist telling people to love their neighbor as himself? He has no motivation to love anybody as himself. Absolutely none. Except to feel better about himself. He doesn't live like heaven's a real place. He doesn't live like there's a God to worry about. He has no reason to give, yet he gives 25% of his income to UNICEF. An atheist. There's nothing in it for him. But you and I, if we give to the kingdom work of the church, if we shed our paralysis... If we decide, I'm going to do something in the life of one kid, one family, one community. There are eternal benefits for you and I. There are rewards that will outlast your life on earth. And will greet you someday in heaven. For Peter... Unless somebody comes and shares Jesus with the guy and he gets things sorted out with him and God, it ends at death. But you and I can outlive our lives by giving. Let's not be shown up by an atheist. Doesn't that, ugh, that just really bugs me. Let's don't let atheists lead in this. Let's allow the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to break out into this world and bring water and food and the kingdom of God to bear in the dark places of this world. Don't let the glory go to UNICEF and the atheists. Let it go to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm supposed to love Peter as my neighbor. So I pray that you'd help us to love those who we struggle to love. I pray that you'd help us to love those who are far away and struggling to have enough to eat or drink, to have medical care. Lord, I do pray that you would just touch our hearts Motivate us just to do a little something to give to those in need. I thank you for the many folks who have sponsored children through Compassion or World Vision or many other organizations out there. I thank you for the those who have been so faithful in their giving to this church and to other ministries through this church. I just pray for blessing and a Merry Christmas upon all these great folks. And I pray, Father, that your kingdom would grow and expand and overwhelm and overtake this world as we go out and love our neighbor as ourselves. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. May you share it. May God's kingdom reign. Amen.